Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode eight of Pith and Moment, a podcast for all things Shakespeare. My name's Kyle Downing. I'm a Shakespeare coach in New York City, and I am here with a good friend of mine, Amelia Fisher of the University of Houston and of Tennessee Shakespeare Company and of Rice University and multiple other Shakespeare production companies around the country. Amelia, what's going on? How are you doing? I'm doing great, Kyle. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm jittery, full of energy and ready to get this going. Um, why don't you start off by telling the listeners just a little bit about yourself? Certainly. So I am originally from just north of Atlanta, Georgia, in Gainesville. If anyone watched the 1996 Olympics, it was where the rowing venue was. Wow. And then I went off to undergrad in theater at Coastal Carolina University, went to grad school at same place as you, University of Houston, for acting. And since then, I've just been traveling around doing uh, work in as a director, actor, and fight choreographer for different Shakespeare companies primarily. Although now that I'm in Atlanta, there's lots of fun film and TV opportunities as well as voiceover. Yes, and Amelia has a, a very long resume of a very, uh, very broad set of cool credits. And I'm really excited to have her on the podcast today. Um, so I guess we're just going to dive right in now. Um, we're here Great. to talk about a play that you are currently directing, Much Ado About Nothing. So why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about the production, about your concept? Yes. So I'm directing this production at Rice University, and we're in our uh, starting our fourth, third week, third or fourth week of rehearsal. I should know that, but it just <laughs> all feels like one blur of being immersed in this play. So this is a production that we've chosen to set in 1840s Texas, because as always, looking for ways to clarify the text, as your friend Jillian was talking about a few weeks ago on this podcast. And one of the things we're looking for with this play is how do we get a world that has a lot of disparate groups of people striving for identity? Because we do have so much of that going on in this play, people who are redefining themselves or rejecting other people's definition of themselves. So I was really looking for uh, one of those locations that would make the audience feel connected to these people's backstories as well as what they're trying to accomplish now. And um, since I'm doing the production in Houston, Texas, I thought that the sort of pioneer world of early Texas would be a really fun setting for this. So where <laughs> did you get this idea and I guess what brought it about in your creative stream of consciousness? Sure. So I besides being a Deadwood fan and having immersed myself recently in a lot of uh, Wild West type stuff, I was looking for a time period that would give us an identity for the women because we have some a lot of very outspoken women in this play, some very uh, mischievous women in this play, and we don't want to set it in a time period where that kind of behavior would be seen as automatically shrewish because mm. uh, we're not doing Taming of the Shrew. <laughs> so we have to have a time period where that sort of behavior could be fun and winsome and something that other characters could be fine with so that Benedict is not automatically the only nice person and Beatrice is just the shrew. Mm -hmm. uh, they are an even match of both being outspoken, both being witty, and we have to find a world in which that's okay for women. So it's hard to set it very early on unless we're just going for, uh, or we're going for a more romantic uh, fairy tale type setting or high Renaissance. Um, I think it's fun to go ahead and set it in a world where that is okay-ish in society. So moving it into this, um, you know, early Texas gives me the leniency of the social rules. 
especially fun then to play with a family group with Leonardo and Hero and Beatrice and our Antonia, because we have a girl playing that role. Ah. Um, bringing them in from a past that was back east with a more uh, strict culture. And then now that they're in this early Texas world, getting to relax and become who they really are. Well, and I think for the average American, like when they think of Texas and when they think of Western um, expansion, they think of cowboys and cowgirls and and, and all these, Mm -hmm. all this literature and all these movies, we think of the cowgirl as fun and outgoing. And in that sense, I guess that makes the character Beatrice kind of this like acceptably fun, outgoing, wild character. Am I right? Uh, yes, if we had gone for the cowgirl for her, but I actually um, shied away from that because my personal pet peeve as a independent woman who is occasionally outspoken is when we have the trap of these strong women's roles, we always put them in pants. And that bothers me as someone who uh, is more of a, yay, let's celebrate what it is to be feminine and masculine and have those both be good rather than Uh, To be a strong woman, I have to be masculine. So I like the message better of having her be still in a very traditional outfit. She's in skirts. She's in petticoats. She's got the corset. But that it's her personality that's allowed to be more on an equal level as those pioneer women were. They had to be partners who could run the ranch and take care of, you know, build their sod house and also take care of all the chores and all that stuff. So otherwise the family wouldn't eat. So I really like that setting being something that this can, we have a variety of women's roles available and we do have the, you know, more, uh, I don't know how much profanity you're allowed to say on this. I was going to say kick-ass cowgirl who it was only one in our play who has double pistols. She's got like, you know, heeled boots and a cool hat. And so she, I've, that's my Conrad. I did borrow that from the Josh Whedon version is switching that gender as well. So I have a lot of different women who are represented in this play in different ways because this society allowed that to be a possibility. Mm-hmm. And I never, it's interesting you bring up the idea of masculinization through the use of pants because I had never really thought of it that way. And when we talk about in society, even things as simple as somebody wearing a pants, or when we talk about a pants role, it doesn't have to be that in order to be a strong female character. A female character can be strong in her femininity rather than by becoming strong by masculinizing uh, her costume and her, her attitude. So that's pretty cool. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess, why don't you give us a quick synopsis of, of Much Ado About Nothing for those of us who aren't familiar, uh, as familiar with it, so that we can start talking about some of the uh, characters and some of the scenes. Sure. So this is one of the comedies with a sparring pair of lovers or a few pairs of lovers. And we've got this family unit I already talked about, Leonardo, his daughter Hero, and her cousin Beatrice. We also have an aunt in this one. Uh, Traditionally, that is a male role, Antonio, who is Leonardo's brother slash in our production, a sister. So Uh we've got this strong family unit who uh, we start the play with and they're waiting for those military to get back from war and we hear that there's this guy named benedict and don pedro's a prince and then they he's been recently honoring a young guy named claudio so we have this military group that comes in there's a history between beatrice and benedict there's lots of verbal sparring as i said before lots of banter everyone laughs about it uh but we know that there's something that happened between them in the past that now they've tried to move in separate directions from 
So, of course, all their buddies think it would be such a great idea if they got the two of them to fall in love again. Um, which they're going to do through a series of convoluted events and mostly deception, but all with a good <laughs> heart. Um, among that starting to happen, we have the young, gallant Claudio, who instantly falls in love with Hero, Beatrice's cousin, the daughter of the house. And that marriage, you know, it gets planned. It's all happy. They're going to do it later in the week. But we have a villain who, uh, along with Aaron the Moor, is just a straight-out bad dude. He does not have any last-minute repentance like Richard, um, no moral struggles like Macbeth. He says from the beginning, you know, I am that I am, and he's going to be this way. So he's Don Pedro, the prince's <laughs> bastard brother. Got to watch out for those bastards. Mm. And so he has his he discontent from the beginning. He decides he's going to try to screw over the marriage with Hero and Claudio by setting her up to seem uh, false, i.e. that she's been sleeping around with other guys. Right. He says he's going to bring Claudio to see that event. Of course, his henchman, Baraccio, has decided he's going to stand in. He'll get the servant girl, Margaret, to look like Hero from afar. So Claudio sees something that he thinks is Hero sleeping with another man the night before their wedding. Doesn't take that well. Lots of things happen in the wedding scene. He shames her publicly. She dis- she fake dies. They The family unit, uh, Beatrice, our bad guy runs away but is caught. And thrown in there, we have a clown subplot of Dogberry and Burgess and Seacole, who are the town watch, who are instrumental in bringing about the uh, happy conclusion by catching the villains. You know, it's amazing how Shakespeare does that, how, like in plays like Midsummer Night's Dream and in Twelfth Night, where he has all these different subplots and creates this giant episodic show and then has them all tie into each other to create a satisfying ending. It's almost like the Brady Bunch 400 years ahead of its time. Yes. And, you know, I do think that's one of his strengths is bringing those subplots together in a way that you did not expect. <laughs> mm-hmm. So... In uh, on that note, let's go into key characters, I guess, uh, because we've talked about all these characters and their episodism. But why don't we focus right now on the, the two main characters, those those sparring lovers, as you called, or uh, what was it? The word Jack used, merry pranksters. So what we mean when we say sparring lovers is Beatrice and Benedict from Much Ado About Nothing. We mean Baroon and Rosaline from Love's Labor's Lost. And then we mean Kate and Petruchio from Taming of the Shrew. And those three sets of characters are all characters that sort of spar with each other and are almost more interested in winning their battles of wit than they are with being with each other until, of course, (laughs) the end of their respective plays. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your Beatrice in your production? Okay, great. Yes. Uh, So... The wonderful thing about working at Rice University is uh, my cast reflects the incredible diversity of their student body. So I really have a cast that any artistic director would kill for. Um, And that includes uh, African-American Beatrice. So given that, I am a big, similar to my thoughts on gender portrayal, rather than do uh, colorblind casting I like to do color aware casting so that we're not pretending everyone is the same race I am trying to honor these different backgrounds and how they would fit into this world that we've created so Hmm. if we have a Beatrice 
who perhaps was from a um, what would have been a misalliance back east with this dead mother who we never meet in the play. Uh, there's a line that Don Pedro, the prince, says to Beatrice about, oh, you must have been born in a merry hour. She says, no, sure, my mother cried, but then a star danced, and under that was I born. And so our production, we're definitely taking that as mother died, not so much cried mm-hmm. um, in childbirth. So if she had this um, relationship, illicit relationship back east, and the product of that, Beatrice, was taken into the family fold, much against convention of the time it makes sense that then leonardo would have to uproot his family travel over somewhere where they're more uh, open-minded and lenient and it gives us a great um you know crusading nature for leonardo who sometimes becomes one of those throwaway dad roles especially mm. with his quick betrayal of hero which we'll talk about later in the uh wedding so we have this Beatrice, who has grown up with Hero being her main defender champion, she has all of this learning and wit and um, a certain amount of entitlement, which would have been unusual for her in that era. And then we have a Benedict, who they're great partners. You see that in the language, but perhaps he was unable to continue the relationship back east or too much of a uh, mm. perhaps not emotionally prepared for that level of controversy which now that he's back in a different uh, environment he sees the error of his ways and they can finally move forward we hope you know it's interesting you you say that you have an african-american beatrice because as i was rereading the play in preparation for this podcast i noticed a lot of language alluding to her having been out in the sun or she says at <laughs> one point i am sunburnt or yes there, there's language that suggests that she is darker skinned than perhaps the people around her Yes. Uh, so, and we have one reference to that with Hero, but it's only when Benedict's kidding. He says she's brown, but it's, you know, when he's just trying to rib Claudio and say she's terrible. So mm. I did have a lot of fun. We, I emulated one of my mentors, Dan McCleary, at Tennessee Shakespeare Company uh, and spent a week dropping in the play, which is a technique from Shake and Co. back east. Uh, where you do get to drop in certain words in scenes and really build this emotional connection and um, shared details for the cast. So one of those things that dropped in was that sunburnt line that you mentioned. And we were saying, well, you know, where's this come from, Beatrice? And we were asking these questions about it. And it sort of resonated most with the actors present for that scene that this was something perhaps baby hero had asked because she didn't know what was up with her cousin, if that's the only african-american girl she knew she's like what is she sunburnt so uh finding the fun irony that our beatrice gets to play with with lines like that and also if we have characters like don john who perhaps are more uh status focused it gives that a darker undertone fun and it does create an extra set of I mean, there are certainly already conflicts within the play that that relate to that, I guess, because Beatrice does have that line about I am sunburned or whatever. But it also adds a new element to those conflicts, which I find really interesting. Yeah, and we're right. I do want to say back on that. We're not trying to make it a race issue play, which is why you know it's a comedy. We have picked a, a setting in which we have a bunch of different options. So, you know, I have... Um, we have a Korean Conrad who, you know, for this history is probably adopting more of what would have typically been a Chinese immigrant's role. Uh, we have Spanish or Latin American for our 
Don Pedro, and then that's what we're playing for our Don John as well. So we have a mm-hmm. world where a lot of people are coming together, which is really exciting. How about Benedict? You know, this is a guy whose very name contains an adjective for him that we have to fight <laughs> against, or they're not going to want Beatrice and Benedict to be together in the end. But, you know, like Petruchio, how do you deal with this guy who seems very chauvinistic and uh, outspoken against Beatrice? And I think it's that they have to be evenly matched. She's got to go at him as hard as he goes at her. And there has to be that sense of play and mutual enjoyment from mm-hmm. the two of them so that it doesn't get too harsh. It doesn't get uh, one-sided ever. Even though I think the play is written to give Beatrice a little more remorse and heart about their, whatever their past relationship might have been. You know, she has the line about uh, speaking to Don Pedro when they're talking about uh, you have lost the heart of Beatrice, of Benedict. She does say, you know, I lent him mine and she talks about her two hearts for his one false dice all this stuff that alludes to her perhaps being a little more broken up about that than he was mm-hmm. at the time but you know when are women not slightly more emotionally mature so you have to wait for them to catch up <laughs> so we have this relationship between beatrice and benedict that is fun and light-hearted and sort of um well conflicting what what's the word i'm looking for they're they're playing against each other they're playing off Definitely each other competitive uh, competitive and so figuring out what role that plays in a relationship if that can be a healthy thing when that becomes not healthy i think that we get a bit of an extreme from benedict in the party scene he has this long speech about how little how much she's misused him uh and he sort of goes off the handle about her breath smelling and all of these reasons she wouldn't he wouldn't want to be around her which we have her and some other productions do as well slipping in early to overhear some of that so but then he does continue to be harsh once everyone's noticeably in the room and it's public so we have (laughs) we have a lot of heat coming from there which could come from frustration um could come from repressed feelings there's a lot of ways we can play that But it is something you have to tackle. How do you make these characters still appealing? And I think as an actor approaching it, any of these monologues, if you're doing them from auditions or scenes for callbacks, definitely trying to make sure you're not just going the sarcastic I hate you route. How do you use the language to meet your match and find the person who allows you to be all of who you are rather than attacking someone who you don't like? (laughs) You know, it's interesting how you talk about uh, that speech, oh, she misused me past the endurance of a block, or however it is that starts out. And then you also talk about Beatrice on the other side of things, uh, having something in their past that perhaps she was a little bit more hurt about than she thought he was. If we don't have that, if we don't have these characters holding some sort of, like, not grudge, but some kind of pain from the past, then we might not understand why they're so quick to, to jump back in love with the other once they hear that each other was in love with them later in the play, right? Yes, definitely. I think that's a great point to bring up um, about these characters, which makes me more enamored of this play than I am of Tamey the Shrew, because we do see these iterations. You know, this was, uh, what, seven years after Tamey the Shrew? So, Mm. and uh, after Love's Labors as well. So we have this evolution of these two sparring lovers that go from two people who don't know each other at all and who have the great more physical war going on in Tamey the Shrew to uh, Rosaline and Brune, who have the verbal stuff going on, but then don't end up together at the end of the play. Everyone sort of puts a pause on that and leaves. <laughs> and then we have these two, 
who, uh, because, you know, the play was at one point referred to as Love's Labors, one, there's a good argument for this being the play that is mentioned in some um, in some journals, articles, there's some reference to a Love's Labors one play. And people are like, well, what could that be? In this play, we do have two lovers who are, you know, verbally engaged and who had a past relationship but didn't get together and now they have another shot he's coming back from a war they're going off to war at the end of love's labors lost so there's an argument for that being the alternate title to this play as well although we're not really diving into that in my production but i was going to say i do really appreciate that extra layer of vulnerability and um heart that this play has that perhaps tammy the shrew does not initially it's more boisterous and you go straight for the uh warring lovers who become then enamored this one i do think there's that underbelly of they're already engaged with each other it's like any good 1940s movie with the mm-hmm. uh, uh relationships that you slap them because you love them and whatever and <laughs> uh i do think that that adds another layer of engagement to this and maturity which is sometimes missing in the others you know i like how you use the word underbelly because again as i was rereading through this play i did notice like an odd complexity uh, with Beatrice's character between her being, um, you know, super smart and, and witty and outgoing and respected by a lot of people, but also she shows insecurity in, in a couple of really interesting places and to a couple of really interesting other characters. We've already discussed one of them in that uh, when she's talking to Don Pedro about her love affair um, and how that sort of worked out or didn't work out. She talks about her hearts and all of that. So that's unusual because we don't really get the sense that Don Pedro, the prince, and Beatrice have a relationship before this. So they're basically strangers besides having Benedict in common. And soon, you know, he's helped to bring about Hero's marriage. And he certainly remarks on her personality enough to for us to think that it's new to him. So that's an interesting moment. It's right after, but it's right after her cousin has basically gotten engaged and... All of these things are happening, and the guy she probably loved most of her past relationships just publicly humiliated her. Not that she's all broken up about that. She can take a few knocks, but, you know, not the best contrast for a girl to experience. And I think a lot of women in the audience are going to be able to connect with that. Of course. Uh, And so how about this this other character, this clown? Um, that sort of has this subplot in the middle of the play. Dogberry, what what do you think about him? Yeah, so Dogberry. Um, we've got this great clown who is unaware of his foibles, you know, th- which is, of course, what makes him into the clown rather than a fool who is more self-aware and is usually trying to enact some sort of change upon the situation or the main characters. We've got a clown who comes in very bombastically. He's got this new job, which, you know, we've talked about with my cast, whether that is actually appointed or perhaps he just took this upon himself to become new sheriff of the little town. So he's trying to whip these new recruits into shape. And of course, like any good clown, he's found the only two people who might be less competent than he is. And we have a lot of uh, fun stuff going on there, but his main focus, most of his comedy comes from his uh, misuse of language. And I'm forgetting the term for that right now. It's malaprops, right? Yeah. Yeah. So he has that all through. He's saying the wrong thing when he means something else. And it's, you know, like uh, he talks about something being the watches, a loud watch being something most tolerable. 
when of course he means intolerable and other things like that. So how do you make that funny for a modern audience for an extended scene and then three others? It is kind of a one trick pony. So thanks Shakespeare for that. But if we have that in contrast to all of these characters who are very um, verbally equipped and making use of all that wordplay, then we have this guy who thinks he is and, of course, is not at all. Whether we have sort of split the difference with the two uh, assistants in this comedic scene between one who doesn't clock any of that and one who is aware that things are not proceeding the way they should be at his first job interview. So um, what I'd like about him fitting into our main idea of sculpting your own identity and fitting this in is that Dogberry himself is sort of making, being a self-made man here. He has taken on this new duty, which for us is like a sheriff, but he's called the Prince's Watch in the script. He's outlining all of these things. So his ambition is uh, perhaps a lot greater than his capability would be, but you have that theme turned on its head. And the militaristic nature of the other male characters being mocked in this guy who doesn't want to apprehend or comprehend, as he says, anybody. He just says, you know, you should go, if you see a thief, make sure you call him up. And they're like, well, what if he won't do it? He's like, oh, I'll leave him alone. Let him show himself what he is and steal out of your company. Uh, So he actually doesn't have any of the aggression that the other characters are being lauded for throughout the play. Clown, though, because as far as Shakespeare's clowns go, most of the time, they either seem to have a wit or a knowledge about something that the other characters don't and and play upon it. Um, Whereas it seems like Dogberry is just sort of put in a position where he's actually clueless. You know what I mean? Yes, definitely. So, yeah, I'm separating him from the fools who are more uh, aware of their situation and how they have suffered in regards to fate and this guy who doesn't have a clue about it at all, which does lend for some fun comedy in the scene with Leonardo and uh, Virgis. I think Seacole might've originally been in that, but I've cut him from the scene in mine because he's doubling as somebody else. So anyway, you have Dogberry and Leonardo and Dogberry. This is a crucial moment. He could have avoided all of the strife of the wedding scene because he's already, uh, his men have caught the villains who have already confessed to everything that they've done to mess up this marriage. But because Dogberry is so inarticulate and um, wears on his hearer, Leonardo, Leonardo just says, deal with it yourself. I don't need to hear about it. I'll see you after this wedding. <laughs> so you have this ah, this moment that's almost like Williams in the poignancy of things almost working out and then not working out. So the more yeah. we can build that um, anticipation for the audience of things that are about to be uh, divulged here that we need to know, then I think that'll help boost the comedy of when he doesn't make it to that because of being too concerned with making little of Burgess to make himself seem more. So what do you think about, I mean, obviously there are two different ways to go about the character of Dogberry. There's one that makes him, you know, an enemy to the audience. And then there's another that makes him sort of sympathetic to the audience. So the audience kind of, roots for him even though they know he's just kind of like a senseless dolt in in certain number of ways what do you think about should should dogberry be sympathetic or should dogberry be somebody they root against um i don't think we get to the rooting against him um whether or not we decide we think he's funny is pretty crucial to the audience enjoying Mm -hmm. him but he 
isn't trying to screw anybody over in this play. He, except for possibly Virgis. But the, right now we have them having a pretty close relationship too that can bear some uh, belittling. Because a lot like Beatrice and Benedict, he gets more concerned with uh, putting someone else down verbally than achieving some of their mutual goals. So we have a Dogberry who is intent on his purpose, just not quite able to fulfill it. So I think we'll have an audience that sides with Dogberry in all of his idiosyncratic uh, farce-like nature. It's like Joey from Friends, right? He has a <laughs> tragic flaw. He just wishes that he's stupid. He's not aware of it whatsoever, which makes no. him farcical. It's not like uh, a sympathetic comedic character who has the tragic flaw does is aware of it but can't change it that's what really makes yeah yeah, that's what makes the audience buy into that so this guy not so much has a tragic flaw has no awareness of it so he does nothing to change it so what about uh the wedding scene we talked a little bit earlier we touched on the public shaming of hero at the wedding uh by claudio what do we make of the relationship between these two characters as opposed to the relationship between beatrice and benedict yeah, this is a huge problem for a director. The whole Claudio issue was something that I came into the play knowing I would have to fix either in mm-hmm. casting or working the scenes and finding the truth of those moments between the two actors. Because like Bertram or Proteus, it is hard to forgive this dude for what yep. he says and does in that scene. Moreover, that it's not, uh, I think the most damning thing for him is that it's not a passionate response in the moment like Othello it's, it's a pre-planned premeditated yeah. Shame. yeah he says right after Don John so Don John the villain of the story who is the bastard brother who we've just known has been captured because he was in rebellion against his brother he comes in says hey your lady's a slut and Claudio says you should show me first but if it's true I'm gonna publicly shame her So what is up with this dude that he believes the number one guy most likely to lie to everyone over his, you know, new love, her father, his friends, you know, all of this going on. So I think, you know, really important. We talk about the backstory for Hero and or for Beatrice and Benedict. I think it's important that Claudio has some hurts in his past. We talk about love's labors lost. I think he needs to have the same sort of, you know, has someone cheated on him before? Is he super sensitive about this? Or does he just Mm -hmm. really not know women whatsoever and have this idealized version of them that he wants Hero, named Hero, probably not by accident, to (laughs) uh, encapsulate? But difficult. How do you get over that? I can't remember if you've tackled any of those unlikable dudes, Bertram. Proteus. Yeah, Proteus. Yeah, I had, uh, I had the pleasure. I didn't uh, actually play the role, but I got a chance to understudy it uh, at one point. And then I did a lot of, I did a lot of monologue work for Proteus in Jack's class. He seemed to to want to give me Proteus a lot. Um, yeah, so and similar the, thing. Like, how did you overcome audiences dealing? If an audience sees you spurn the person who loves you, how do you then get an audience to engage with your character and your love story again? So. <laughs> The biggest and simplest solution, especially, for example, as long as we're on the subject of Proteus, let's talk about Two Gentlemen of Verona. The easiest way to make it all work and to make it all forgivable is to make it really, really young. You know, yes. to, to have Proteus be like not not just 18, but like 15, you know, whereas, you know, the youthful mind is fickle and just getting used to all these strange and interesting desires that like through adolescence that you don't experience earlier in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and to just make it seem like a, a childlike mood swing, 
right? You, you can love one thing and then love another thing the next. And then your mistakes are forgivable mistakes because you're making them for the first time and you're learning from them. Where With Claudio, yes. for example, it's, it's slightly different because Claudio doesn't necessarily try to rape someone at the end like Proteus does. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, I played Julia for Houston Shakespeare Festival last summer, and we also went the route of, with one of our artistic cousins from UH. Uh, Kyle Curry was playing Proteus. And yeah, we went the route of Super Young. Also added to that, our brilliant director, Brendan Fox, added the layer of celebrity to Sylvia, to the other woman, so that it's a little more believable that, oh, young kid's first high school relationship, he leaves back home, goes to a new place, long distance isn't working out, and there's a celebrity here? Yep. How cool. You get to really meet Kira Knightley or whatever it is. So that's nice to try to justify that other relationship. I think you're right that the youth has to play a big part of it, but also Claudio does have the benefit over those other characters, Bertram and Proteus, there is no other woman. So what I've mm-hmm. been trying to do as a director, I do have a lovely um, man playing my Claudio who does engage with a lot of that youth and um, earnestness that I think he needs. But there's also moments when we can filter in Claudio's doubt about what he's doing. And it's in the text. If we look at that wedding scene, you know, he does ask for confirmation from other people based on what he's seeing. He sees the blushes. He says you know, wouldn't you think that she's pure too? Yeah, so do I. Um, But no, this is what I've been told. However, he has this moment at the end um, or towards the end when he does ask Leonardo, can I just ask her one question? You know, Hero has just reacted to someone saying, to Don John, saying this news is true. She says, true, oh God. Um, She's very fervent and clearly blindsided. And so something about Claudio does kick in enough to go, this doesn't seem right. So for him to really play that doubt and the need for her to be pure and true in this moment of, hey, can I ask her one more question? If that's really a moment where it all could have turned around, then I think we have a little more um, leniency with Claudio. We also can, in our version, when she faints, there's nothing from Claudio saying, let's leave. It's Don John who says, oh, you know, things have, this events have oppressed or whatever. Let's go. So in our state, Claudio feel bad about it and like not want to go. Yeah. And try to go to her, but he's intercepted by Don John and then made to leave. So trying to find those moments to find the things in this text that will help us more than those of you who've tried to do Proteus has in his text. Um, So that's been a really nice thing to help with that public shaming wedding scene. Well, it's interesting. There's also one more element to Claudio that uh, is not possessed by um, by Proteus, and that is that he was out at war, right? And he has this monologue when he comes back that's it's pretty short, but it's it's basically uh, I have the text right here in front of me actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh my lord, when you went onward on this ended action, I looked upon her with a soldier's eye that liked, but had a rougher task in hand than to drive liking to the name of love. But now I am returned, and that war thoughts have left their places vacant. In their rooms come thronging soft and delicate desires, all prompting me how fair young hero is, saying I liked her ere I went to wars. So we have this character that maybe before he goes off, sees this beautiful woman who's the last woman he sees before he goes off to war. And then, as we've seen in movies or read in history, war can be a very traumatic thing, especially for a young man. And, you know, when you see these 1950s World War II or 1940s World War II movies, 
you you see these characters saying, oh, man, the next time I get home and, and see my girlfriend again or the next time I get home and see this woman again. And it's like one of those things that they always, always think about because there are no women there at war. They're fighting a battle. Yes. And so when he comes back, there there is this element of, you know, almost fantasy to it, perhaps, where he's been thinking about this woman the entire time he's been away, right? Could be, yeah. Um, and at least if he hasn't, you know, quite gotten to the point of, oh, she's going to be my love, it is something, someone pure and sweet and young who, yeah, if you're trying to think about something, someone, a woman, maybe that's one of the few that he's met of that status who could be a suitable wife and partner and um, all of those things. Uh, our Claudio is also Korean and so also mm-hmm. taking the track of a Asian immigrant at the time who would have come over for the gold rush for California and then sort of enlisted, made his way further east. So he's on this track from west to east while everyone else is going east to west, which I think is a fun contrast in their sensibilities because he does err on the side of too buttoned up or too um, societally strict. So with that, if he's been trying to cross in this frontier war, he probably hasn't seen many other women, period, and at least not any who would have been coming from the east and of her... uh, We'll say breeding and gentility since I'm from the South. But I do think that that idea of an idealization of her and based on image is something that pops up a lot in the text. In that whole wedding scene, he's not interested in how she feels or what she's thinking. He's going Mm -hmm. off of what she looks like. And so it's an interesting uh, track for anyone playing Claudio to go from someone who makes all of these incorrect judgments, you know, all the proof he has. He has seen someone who looks like her embrace another man. So he goes off of the image of that and the image of her blushes and what she's looking like. And then he transitions into this man who has to repent. He has to go honor her fake gravesite, And then he has to accept marriage to another girl without ever seeing her face. And really important to include those veils. I love costuming anyway, so I'm never going to, get rid of a veil but this uh device which is much nicer than the whole bed trick thing at the end is that leonardo says you you know i accept your apology but if you marry this previously unmentioned daughter of my uh brother in our production sister and so he says he will here he goes to the wedding the next day which is a nice uh, mirror image of the wedding that happened earlier and they're all veiled he says who is which one is she? They bring her forward. He says, can I see her face? And Leonardo denies this request. And I think that's a really important moment for our Claudio to process of taking things on faith and not judging the book by its cover before she unveils. It's a really beautiful growth for a character because you go from, he goes from somebody who, like you said, is, is very focused on image and almost it seems like the more we're talking about this, it seems like this image he's created of her and finally getting to to have the chance to woo her and or to be with her. He, he's almost just, it seems like, scared of losing her. And in, in that fear comes a willingness to believe what you fear, right? So if he fears losing her and is, it, is willing to believe it enough that he sees a woman who looks like Hero doing sexual acts with another man it it is something that he's willing to believe because he fears it and then Mm -hmm. to to be able to grow into a mature a more mature 
man over the course of a play who maybe becomes more confident and becomes more willing to accept things on face rather than face value um, is just a really cool growth for a young character to, to undergo. So I like that. I like that a lot the more we're talking about it. Yeah, and I think it is important to tap into that fear. I think my quote from rehearsal that day, because we are going into the mind of Claudio a little bit with some heightened moments of um, some magical realism, which is always my favorite. But Hmm. we go into an image up on the balcony of Hero being embraced by this other man. It's very dreamlike and whatnot, but it's happening as Claudio's thinking about it, not while Don John's describing it. So as Claudio's thinking about if I see anything tomorrow or tonight that means I should not wed her tomorrow. Uh, so getting into that mindset of person who has those fears, of course, I'm referencing uh, Ron with the Hermione and Harry Potter moment in the seventh book that was so <laughs> controversial in the movies. So you have that same moment of things that you've feared happening. He gets to, he visualizes that and being such a visually oriented character that does eat away at him the same way that Othello's uh, emotional doubts eat away his soul Mm -hmm. and trust so that's going to bring us to the poetic element of the day which i've been trying to do a lot more often lately and i think it's a great subject especially for my learning um today's poetic element is metonymy and the definition of metonymy is basically when um something has to do with the subject is substituted for the subject itself For example, um, saying the pen is mightier than the sword, meaning that writing is more effective than fighting. Or when a character refers to the crown instead of saying royalty. Um, So I've pulled up a couple examples of metonymy, and I just wanted to discuss with you how they might affect uh, the script from an acting standpoint, like how they affect an actor and how it also affects the audience's ear. Um, For example, one of the more famous metonymy examples in Shakespeare's canon is friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Yeah. Um, Which is a great speech that I've worked on before. (laughs) So what is the, what effect does that create on the audience by him saying, lend me your ears instead of saying, listen up. Yeah. I think it's a really um, great rhetorical device for catching people's attention in a different way. When we make people think about what it is they just heard, they're more likely to listen to the rest of it and hopefully apply thought to it as well. And of course, that's mm. what that character is trying to accomplish in that moment. Right. Where is he? If he said, listen up, listen up, it's something I hear every day. But if he says, lend me your ears, like he's asking for a favor, he's almost asking for an item from them. It, it yeah. makes them turn their heads. And, you know, I think that's a really interesting one to break down of whether it is metonymy or whether it is synecdoche. Uh, yeah. Because that's... Um, So I think that's a really great instance to argue the point between metonymy and synecdoche, which is the sort of other version of this same rhetorical device, wherein you take one smaller part of a whole and use it to refer to the whole. So this would be a case where you're an example would be, you know, nice wheels, meaning car wheels being Mm -hmm. part of the car. There we go. So depending on what it is that we're asking for in that moment, is he asking for their attention which is associated with ears and therefore it's metonymy or is he asking for you know them their their whole selves and therefore ears reference would actually be synecdoche um so fun little nerding out moment (laughs) and you know i i love that you brought that up because this is something i struggled with all day as i was looking through 
um, for examples of metonymy? Is, is this synecdoche? Is this personification? Is this metaphor? Right. Uh, and with a lot of areas, it's a, it's a really fine line and there's a lot of gray area. For example, uh, when talking about the heart, there's, there's a lot of characters in Shakespeare that say something along the lines of, oh, my heart is full um, or my heart is heavy, which heart in that case is a representation of love and everything. But it's also the heart is about more than love. It's, it encompasses a lot of human desire and um, human passion. Mm -hmm. And it's not just love. Whereas when somebody says... Um, uh, for example, it's uh, where is this? Lord Montague in Romeo and Juliet says, but woo her gentle Paris, get her heart. That to me is firmly metonymy because he's actually saying get her love and the heart is associated with love. Yes. Or hand with marriage. Right. And, and again, there, there are a lot of different characters that say other things having to do with the heart, but it's not, it doesn't feel like it's firmly metonymy because in those cases, the heart is representing a lot more than just one theme. Yeah. And I think that's a fun thing to uh, dive into. And as an actor approaching that text to go, Hey, what is it that I am referring to? So, you know, if you knew the difference between those two things, um, then you can, or those two rhetorical devices, uh, rhetorical devices, then you can start to deepen your understanding of what it is your character wants and become more specific with those objectives. You know, and that's what I love about all these rhetorical devices. Like, there are people around the country that will tell you, oh, you don't really need to worry about that. You just need to worry about what you're saying. Well, no, you do need to delve into it a little bit because the character chose to use it like this for a reason. Rhetoric, a rhetorical device is something that helps a character in the art of persuasion. And yes. you choose your words very specifically when you're trying to work with persuasion. Other examples of metonymy in Shakespeare's canon, we have symbolism. And in time, when she had fitted you with her craft to work her son into the adoption of the crown, Hotspur says, but soft, I pray you, did King Richard then proclaim my brother Edmund Mortimer heir to the crown? Henry IV says, opinion that did help me to the crown had still kept loyal to possession. So what do you think about the replacing of royalty with the word crown? Like, what effect does that have to you? I think crown is much easier for our audience uh, than sometimes another example of this would be uh, the metonymy in Macbeth, the Scottish play, which I can say because not every one of us are in a theater. <laughs> uh, when they talk about, you know, they have the scene with uh, going to get the English force to come and clean out Scotland and they talk about England. And the, what they mean is the king himself but they're using mm -hmm. this associated thing to refer to the king. But our ears don't, we don't in America assume that there is a monarchy. So when we are hearing that someone is making a decision or that something's going to happen, we're just hearing the country and not the metonymy that was intended. So I think when something is as recognizable as crown, it can be a really helpful and interesting and new way to hear the same thing rather than just hammering a name that is probably the same as six other names in the play, Henry, Richard, sure. whatever. <laughs> but when we have those moments of metonymy that are not as clear for an audience, I think it is something that needs to be addressed with the actors and see how those people can work to clarify. Well, and you know, there is one example, actually. So I pulled up examples from Much Ado because 
you know, we were talking about Much Ado today. And uh, one Don Pedro saying, come, lady, come, you have lost the heart of Senor Benedict is one I already mentioned. The other, uh, Leonardo at one point says, my heart is with your liking. And I wanted to talk with you about, like, is this metonymy or is this something else? Because this is one of those gray areas where it's not exactly standing in for one specific concept. Yeah, I think, you know, Elizabethans being so into this sort of new science of the body, which, you know, not all that accurate, but still very interesting when they're talking about the different humors. They had uh, they also had very specific um feelings associated with different body parts and heart was not always love they talk about i think it's liver being uh where your passion and all of that lives and so all of these different body parts being associated with things that the elizabethan audience would have keyed into immediately heart and love still makes sense to our ears um now but it was more of that um familial love than necessarily always romantic love so him saying i approve of this is you know welcoming him into the family rather than his dearest desire is to see that happen interesting weird also it's hard to (laughs) it's hard for me to wrap my mind around all this now that we've delved into it in in more detail but it, it, it is another one of those instances where the way the actor chooses to put their thoughts behind it is very, very important to the action of the play and to the character's development. Um, A couple other examples I just want to touch on before we move to the next segment. Um, As You Like It, uh, Jake's Du Bois, or however you pronounce the the third son's name in As You Like It, uh, at one point says, purposely to take his brother here and put him to the sword. Now this, to me, seems more like something that would be considered synecdoche, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, synecdoche being, uh, that the sword is standing in for the executioner or execution as a whole. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But also it could stand in for like, put him to the sword could stand in for death in which case sword would be metonymy, right? Uh, yes, because death being something that wouldn't have to be part of a, or sword not having to be part of death. There's lots of ways you can meet that. So I would agree that could be. Metonymy, but this would be a fun category to have, you know, buzzers for. Yeah, yeah. Is this metonymy or is this synecdoche? Listeners, I hope you are, I hope some of you out there are as big of nerds as Amelia and I are right now because I'm really, really enjoying this and I I think I could tell Amelia is as well. Um, Definitely. So, a couple other examples. Uh, Talbot says, The sword of Orleans hath not made me smart. These words of yours draw lifeblood from my heart. Richmond in Richard III says, if you do free your children from the sword, your children's children quits it in your age. And Lucio um, in Measure for Measure says, why, what a, ru- what a ruthless thing is this in him for the rebellion of a codpiece to take away the life of a man. That last one is one I'd actually like to talk a little bit about. Is this metonymy or is this something else entirely? Uh, I'm sorry, can you repeat that? Yes, yes. Uh, why, what a ruthless thing is this in him for the rebellion of a codpiece to take away the life of a man? <laughs> yes, so using codpiece, then you're saying that's the metonymy? Yeah, that's right. And it, it's not synecdoche because synec- it, it, a codpiece isn't technically part of 
the male reproductive organ. Right. It would have right? to be if the clothing was rebelling or something, if it was synecdoche. So if it's metonymy, then yes, using the cod piece to refer to perhaps the things that it covers. <laughs> oh, Shakespeare. I, I, I did specifically seek out an example for a cod piece because I knew <laughs> I knew Shakespeare was going to use it somewhere in his canon. Oh, um, I think there's so much metonymy going on with that general member that you could probably find several different ways to refer to it. <laughs> for sure. At least a million in R and J. So the next segment that we have for today that I'm going to move on to right now is a game. And Amelia has been told just a little bit about this game right before the podcast. So she didn't have time to prepare, which is exactly how we like it. <laughs> um, and so basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to give Amelia three items from Shakespeare. They can be lines. They can be characters. They can be CDs. They can be themes. They can be whatever. And she has to tell us what these three things have in common. Um, so I guess what we're starting with right now is, uh, oh, the game is called Shakespeareamid. Did I mention that? It's Yes, to it's me. Now they know slightly more than I do about the rules. There we go. Cool. <laughs> so the first one would be Julia, Rosalind, and Viola. Are all in disguise. That's right. So another thing about this game that I forgot to mention before we started is these are very specific things, right? It wouldn't just be... Um, plays in Shakespeare's canon, or it wouldn't even just be, these are characters from Much Ado About Nothing, for example. It would be something much more specific, like these are characters from Much Ado About Nothing who are deceived throughout the play. Okay. Um, so the next one, and by the way, I'm going to let you know, we can actually, you can actually take a little more time with these if you need, and I'm going to edit the pauses out. <laughs> it's not like Jeopardy. Um, I have to like yeah, exactly. buzz in immediately. No, and the quicker you get it, obviously, the more fun it is. But, like, these are actually – some of them are pretty difficult. So I'm going to yeah. give you a little more airtime, and we'll cut out the dead okay. space. great. I just um, want to be as good as Jillian was. <laughs> she nailed she it. really well. And I didn't edit that at all. Like, she, she's just as big yeah. of a nerd as any brief, of us. Brief shout-out to her. <laughs> um, so the next one we have is Polonius, Laertes, and Claudius. Uh, Polonius, Laertes, and Claudius are all characters in the play who are killed by Hamlet. That's absolutely correct. Great. Bam. Two out of two. Um, next we have Othello, Macbeth, and Coriolanus. Ooh, Othello, Macbeth, Coriolanus. They're all soldiers. Um, they all get promotions. I don't know, but I'm really looking forward to hearing your explanation. <laughs> So you have half of it right, actually. It's uh, they're all soldiers who die in Act Five. Oh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, the next we have Antipholus, Dromeo, and Sebastian. Sebastian from Twelfth Night. Okay, thank you for clarifying. Yeah. Um, and which Antipholus and Dromeo? Oh, that's part of the fun. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> it doesn't either. matter, actually. Is the answer? It doesn't matter which one. Okay. Because I was going to say they were all traveling in a different or, you know, spent the play in a different land if it was the ones who were out of their water. Mm -hmm. but it's actually simpler than that. They all have twins. That's right. They're all <laughs> characters who have twins. Um, Casca, Cassius, and Brutus. Um... They're all, and which, uh, Casca is the one that there's only one of them, right? I haven't done that play. 
Yes, yes. It's, uh, they're all, he's, uh, yes, there's only one cast guy, the one in Julius cool. Caesar. And we're also talking about the Brutus in Julius Caesar. Yes, figured. Okay, great. Um, then I'm going to say they all betray somebody? Same guy? Yeah, yeah. They all stab Caesar. Okay, great. Yep. So... Pretty much, what was that? Pretty much a perfect five for five. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> With some hesitancy. Ju- <laughs> Juliet, Ophelia, and Cleopatra. They all kill themselves. That's right. That was quick. But that's arguable uh, with Ophelia. That is true, yes. Gertrude there are... says it's an accident, but there's also the idea of, hey, Gertrude, why were you hanging out and saw this happen and didn't do anything? Did you kill her? Ooh. I didn't think about that. Nobody's ever brought that up to me. I like that. <laughs> we I'm going to work have, with that at some point. The only thing we have to go with suicide for her is that the, you know, I forget if that um, character, the uh, the burial has a name or if he's just the friar or whoever he is. But the guy who buries her says that the death was doubtful, um, which implies suicide. But yeah, we don't have a lot of textual confirmation for that. Fun. Cool. So next one, Earl of Richmond, Macbeth, and Prince Hal. Um, you said Richmond, Macbeth, and Prince Hal? That's right. Well, Richmond and Prince Hal both conquer other countries or come back to become king. They all become kings, is that it? They all become kings. That's absolutely oh, okay, right. Um, so Romeo, Valentine, and Rosalind. Ooh, are all banished? That is absolutely correct. <laughs> so I'd like to let everybody know. I play. There are. I have two friends at at the restaurant where I work on weekends that um, are also Shakespeare geeks, and I play this, these games with them to test them oh, out and nice. see if they're practical. And they had a they had a pretty tough time with this one, but you have not so far. Let's see if we can get you with some of the trickier ones. Okay. So the next one is Romeo and Juliet. Two Gentlemen of Verona and Merchant of Venice. Um, they are. They all have lovers. They. Yeah, I don't know that I'm going to be able to get specific enough on that one. Cool. They are all plays that take place in Italy. Oh shoot! I was thinking about <laughs> location too, but that's the uh, the downfall of doing modernized productions the one i just did was set i just played portia for um houston shakespeare festival and of course it was mm-hmm. set in la and new york oh City interesting yeah the venice uh so the next one is a look to like if looking liking move gallop apace you fiery footed steeds and their rust and let me die and are you using those lines or are you using synecdoche to refer to the speeches? <laughs> no, I am definitely using the lines themselves. Although the speeches okay. would be the same for the purposes of this game. Okay, so you said the first one was? I'll look to like if looking liking move. Gallop apace, you fiery footed steeds, and there rust and let me die personification no simpler uh commands nope what's up all lines said by juliet (laughs) yeah so i'm a little too googled in 
<laughs> uh, it's a, like the last couple of ones have been really specific, so I decided to throw that in there to mess with you. As a, um, as a future Juliet, I am always aware of the Juliet lines. <laughs> <laughs> so the next one is, if music be the food of love, play on. Now is the winter of our discontent. And in sooth, I know not why I am so sad. Uh, all said by discontented people? Nope. I mean, yes, but that's not <laughs> the one I was looking for. What were you looking for? All lines to begin a play. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, I have two more. Uh, one is Venice, Athens, and Tyre. All have princes? Um, yes. Not what I'm looking for. Um, so Pericles is Prince of Tyre. So we've got that show going. Um, yeah, not sure. That was actually my first Shakespeare play to be in. Pericles? Yes. What a so, play to begin with. <laughs> I know. But not sure how that fits with the other two. So elucidate me. Um, so it is... Places that are in the titles of plays, or city that are, cities that are in the titles of plays. Ah, that's tricky, since Prince of Tyre is often cut from the name of Pericles. Exactly. And so, I mean, we have Merchant of Venice, but we also have Othello, the Moor of Venice. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, of course, we have Timon of Athens. Right. The last one, Romeo, Macbeth, and Hamlet. Roles you want to play? <laughs> yes. <laughs> also uh, not, but definitely, yeah, sure. absolutely. Something about their soliloquies or the length of the role or No, something title. about what the something about what the characters do. Um You said Romeo, Macbeth, and Hamlet. That's right. They all die. They uh, these characters have, have a their... lot more things in common than I realized. They're characters um, that lose the love of their life. She dies, if we believe that Hamlet loved Ophelia that much. That's also true. Um, so you've actually pretty much won this question by creating more <laughs> answers than I knew of. That's how um, homeschoolers do things. <laughs> but the answer that I had come up with was they are all characters who kill multiple people throughout the course of a play. Oh, Okay. You got to throw in Richard in that case because he has a pretty high record. Well, and uh, yeah, I thought about throwing in Richard, but technically Tyrrell does most, like Tyrrell or murderers do most of the dirty work, whereas That's Romeo and Macbeth and Hamlet actually physically slay multiple people. That's true, although Macbeth has a lot more chalked up to him than he actually kills himself. Yep, also true. Um, cool. So now that we are crunched for time, I'm going to move quickly on to the next segment. Okay. Uh, also, Amelia was amazing at this game. That was a really hard game. And I did not expect anybody to do so well, especially go, what, nine for nine to start off? Nice. Everybody give Amelia a hand. The next thing we're moving on to is a new segment I call Tyrant Producer, um, in which the, the, uh, the grounds for this segment is basically, imagine an idiot tyrant producer gives you a million dollars to direct a production, but he says you have to follow this one crazy rule. Like, for example, you have to make Romeo a 90-year-old man or Got whatever, it. and you have to make it work. So today, 
The tyrant producer says, you have to do as you like it with complete gender reversal. How do you make it work? Go. <laughs> um, so it's funny that you would pick as you like it to discuss because I, uh, there's a two productions of as you like it being done in Atlanta in the spring, which is my base city right now. So they're doing an all male version of it and an all female version of it. And my brother was just in an all male version of it in Philadelphia with Quintessence Theater Group. Quick plug where he's currently playing Romeo and Romeo and Juliet. Um, so I think it's interesting that we tackle this play as you like it so often based on the whole gender thing. So if we're completely, and there's the one that just happened in New York, too much acclaim, um, with Mark Rylance. So if we're completely swapping those, I'm, or no, sorry, he did 12th night. You can cut that out of what I said. So if you're doing as you like it switched, I think you sort of rob Rosalind of one of the things she's best known for which is being the largest female um, role in Shakespeare's canon she is someone who has a lot of like Beatrice and um, Portia a lot of hangups about love which come from a place seemingly of vulnerability and I think if you switch that to a guy it would you would need to maintain um, that sense of self-defense rather than um bombast or the ways that the Petruchio and Benedict characters usually avoid love. So that would be an interesting challenge if you were switching. I think that it is I'm going to jump in also with one of my things like to to add on to that Mm -hmm. with the idea of switching and and the male vulnerabilities about love sometimes becoming bombast and the the troubles of avoiding that we also have the challenge of cross-dressing. This would mean that Rosalind would be a boy that would go into the woods dressed up as a female. And the interesting effect for that, exactly, you just let, it creates comedy. Males dressing as females in Shakespeare is more comedic than, than females dressing up as males. Like, for, for example, like Malvolia wearing those yellow tights is just like a roaring laughter thing in Twelfth Night. Um, so that's another thing as well. Yes, I think it would be interesting to tackle given that, because, okay, we're coming at it from an Elizabethan standpoint of it was totally fine to see young boys dressed as girls and, or being the romantic leads. So even when you have a character like that, who gets to go back to being a boy, we're fine believing that this young man um, falls in love with this boy character for now, because we know she's actually supposed to be a girl, quote unquote. So it'd be Mm -hmm. interesting to the whole Orlando Rosalind thing. If you have Orlando as a woman who, uh, is falling in love with a guy who's dressed as a girl? Is that what you're saying would happen? Yeah, yeah. That would be exactly it. Yeah. So um, I think the difficulty with any of those situations with uh, the breaches roles, whether it's Twelfth Night or As You Like It and having the whole love plot pursue through that, is how much do you play that they are really developing feelings for this character and how much is it mm-hmm. just that they get along and then later they're thrilled that it's their love. So that would be tough if my tyrant producer said switch <laughs> all the genders. It's, you know, the other characters wouldn't, it wouldn't affect as much because you do have, you know, the sh- the pastoral lovers would be fine. You could definitely have a sarcastic fun um, touchstone who was a woman. 
Right. You could definitely also have like a Jayquees who was like a melancholy woman talking about life. And yeah, odd to have that female uh, commune going on in the woods. You don't, you lose some of the merry men of Sherwood Forest thing going on with the Duke sure. who's been exiled, Rosalind's father. But well, fun and you to know, figure on... out what that other version would be if it's you know ladies' retreat or some sort of feminine uh, community. And it's interesting that you mentioned the Duke because now what we have is a world in which it's, we have to accept that it's the women who are ruling the kingdom, right? Like we have these two Dukes who are sisters and one is banished to the woods to create this female commune. And we have to accept that this is a, that Duke Frederick or Frederica or whatever we would call her is someone who is, has a position of power and who rules. Well, most other developed countries have accepted that women are sometimes in the major spot of power. It's just America that's currently lagging on that. Isn't that funny? What does that <laughs> say about us? Yeah. But, but, but you, I wouldn't have a problem having those strong, uh, a matriarchal society. It would be sort of like all those productions that take Prospero into a Prospera in giving us the harder thing to figure out is that... Um, what is the nature of that struggle between the two what would be sisters now and the revenge that they both seek at some point in time one thing i like is the idea of oliver being a woman who fought a lion <laughs> i think that gives a special sort of teeth to that role if you if you get what i mean yeah um, it definitely is a transition if she's this courtly flower who then goes off in the woods and then has to fight off a lion yep. um yeah, that would be fun to see a, so there, a growth from her point of view. Yeah, there, there. I mean, there's definitely stuff to work with. It, it would be, it'd be a difficult challenge. I don't know how the production would turn out as a whole, especially with the the stuff we talked about first. But I think we've had fun discussing how to make it work at the very least. And who knows? Maybe somebody will try it someday and make it work. Yes, um, I haven't seen that version. <laughs> I'll be interested in the uh, all male and all female versions. I'll get to see in the spring, but. I haven't seen one that's just completely swapped. The very last segment of today is uh, called the Shakespearean Text Database. What I've done for this segment is I've accumulated a few statistics from an awesome website called www.opensourceshakespeare.org. It has a searchable database of all of Shakespeare's text. You can search by word. You can search by phrase. You can filter by character and by play. It's really an amazing resource for anybody who's as big of a nerd as I am about Shakespeare. And what I've done is I, I was thinking about uh, Green as I was, uh, you know, reviewing Richard III. And I, I thought to myself, what would the plays be where the word dream most commonly appears? And what does that say about the play? And would these be the plays that we would expect? So I have in front of me... The top nine uh, plays in which the word dream is included. And I want you to try to guess them family feud style. <laughs> okay. Uh, so do, does that mean that I have to guess the order as well? Or just which ones? No, just you have to get uh, you have to get at least three of the top nine without... Uh, you have to get four of the top nine without missing... Or without getting something wrong three times, I believe, is the rules family feud. Okay, let's go with Tempest. Uh, Tempest is on there. Tempest is uh, tied for last place at number uh, with nine instances of the word dream. Okay. Um, 
we'll go with Midsummer Night's Dream. Yep, there we go. Another episode. That's actually 16, which puts it third among all of Shakespeare's plays. I'll also take Romeo and Juliet. Absolutely. It appears 19 times. That's number two. Seven appear in Queen Mab alone. Yeah. That big Mercutio speech. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and Richard III is number one with 25 because obviously it has all these talk about the dreams of right. uh, Richard III and of Richmond. Um, other names that I was surprised to see on this list, uh, Henry VI, Part Two. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, with 11. Uh, Hamlet, I wasn't so surprised, but Cymbeline. Cymbeline, it appears 11 times, which I is tied with Henry. I was wondering about one of the uh, romances, either that or Winter's Tale. Winter's Tale is actually on there, too, with 11. Ah. It's tied with Cymbeline, Hamlet, and Henry VI, Part Two. Nice. So even though so, I only named three, I would have named more, and therefore I get full points for this game, right? You get above full points. You get extra credit. <laughs> um, and it's, it's stuff that I would not have guessed. Like, I wouldn't have thought to guess Cymbeline or Winter's Tale. Yeah. So To tie it all in, there's um, we mentioned Dream in Much Ado About Nothing as well, and I was going to say my favorite, my favorite Dream speech is probably the Caliban one in Tempest from 3-2, mm-hmm. uh, Be Not Afeard the Isle is Full of Noises. So he yeah. mentions Dream at the end of that gorgeous monologue. And then in Much Ado, in uh, scene 2-1, we have, like I mentioned, this is after they've arranged the marriage of Hero and Leonardo. And, I mean, <laughs> Hero and Claudio. Leonardo has helped arrange it with Don Pedro. And Beatrice leaves. And Don Pedro has this compliment to her. He says she's a very pleasant-spirited lady. And Leonardo describes her um, by saying she's there's little of the melancholy element in her my lord she's never sad but when she sleeps and not ever sad then for i have heard my daughter say she hath often dreamed of unhappiness and waked herself with laughing and i just love that quote and the idea of that self-determination that even though her subconscious dreamed of these things that were unpleasant she waked herself with another Mm -hmm. approach to life that's brilliant. That's beautiful. I love Shakespeare, man. <laughs> Makes me, me so too, happy sometimes. Dude. So we're coming to a close now, and it has been wonderful being able to talk all this supremely nerdy and poetic and interesting stuff with you, Amelia. Um, why don't, before we go, why don't you let the listeners know how they can follow your work and uh, let us know the dates of your production. Sure. Thank you so much, Kyle, for having me on your podcast. And I enjoyed checking out the previous ones in my prep for this. So I do want to share my productions dates with everybody. It is at Rice University in Hammond Hall. So if you're in the Houston area, come on by. It opens on October 2nd and it runs through October 10th. Uh, and those are Thursday through Sunday performances. You can find out more about that at uh, theater.rice.edu or call for tickets at 713 Seven five two nine. If you're interested in finding out more about my upcoming projects, I'm at Amelia Fisher, which is F-I-S-C-H-E-R dot com, or ameliafisher.wordpress.com if you want to check out my blog. Awesome. So go check out Amelia's blog. Go check out her website. Go see her fantastic production <laughs> with uh, color-aware casting that promises to be <laughs> Brilliant in 1840s Texas. Um, 
For myself, I'm Kyle Downing. I'm a Shakespeare coach in New York City. And if you want to follow me on various forms of social media, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at, at NYShakesGuy. You can find me on Facebook, NYShakesGuy. And you can find me on YouTube, Kyle Downing, parentheses, NYShakesGuy. And of course, for more free tips, hints, and material suggestions from all 37 of Shakespeare's plays, you can check out my website, www.kyledowning.com Shakespeare. I'm Kyle Downing for Amelia Fisher. Thank you so much for listening, everybody, and keep up the hard work on your bard work.